hppodcast.com. Out! Out of my kingdom! What is it? A lizard? Or a man? I'm a lizard man, and the swamps belong to me. Before I try to rest, I will set down these notes in preparation for the report I must make. What I have found is so singular and so contrary to all past experience and expectations that it deserves very careful description. I reached the main landing on Venus March 18th, terrestrial time. Being put in the main group under Miller, I received my equipment, watched tuned to Venus's slightly quicker rotation, and went through the usual mask drill. After two days, I was pronounced fit for duty. Those were the opening paragraphs of Lovecraft's sci-fi thriller In the Walls of Eric's, written in... <laughs> Written in collaboration with Kenneth J. Sterling. Why are you laughing? Thriller? <laughs> I thought so. Uh, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And this is the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. Yeah, this story was anything but thrilling. <laughs> I liked it. Oh, God. You really didn't like it at all, did you? I'm so I'm so angry. Yeah, no, well, some people talked it up to me, and it, man, they, those people are just wrong. This really? is a terrible story. Oh, so boring. Okay. And so lame, and it doesn't make any sense. I'm, I can't wait to talk <laughs> about it and tell you about <laughs> specifics to why I hate it. And I can't wait to tell you what I liked about it. I, I, I completely had a different reaction to it. Well, uh, that reader we heard in the beginning was Stephen Brewster. If you remember him, he was our reader for... The horror at Red Hook. Yeah, I do remember him. The electric executioner. So uh, <laughs> I guess he hasn't been on the best stories, but he liked, you know, he's good at putting that punch in the pulp. You know what I mean? Yeah, he he's, is. He's I, I like the way he reads it. For today's show, I also wanted to point out we're using the music of David Maurice Garrett. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you might remember him. Uh, we sponsored one of David's books on one of our earlier shows called Tome of Horror. Right. Which was a collection of really good horror fiction. He's also got this album called Alazif. Uh, we'll put a link to the music on our show notes where you can get it. It's all mythos-inspired instrumentals. Nice electronics, which seem kind of appropriate for this story since yeah. it's a science fiction story. Takes place on and, Venus. Uh, it does. It takes place yeah. on Venus, which is weird for Lovecraft. It is. Uh, he doesn't normally write the firm science fiction. Usually it's monsters from outer space here yeah. in our regular world. What, 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 what about the guy that he wrote it with? Ken Sterling. Yeah, well, Ken Ken Sterling was uh, he was a transplant to Providence. He moved there when he was, uh, I think, twelve or thirteen years old, and when he was fifteen, he figured out Lovecraft lived in Providence, and just went up to his house and knocked on his door and introduced himself and said, "I'm a big fan, and I just want to talk to you." Lovecraft said, "Oh, okay, come on in," and then they talked and kind of became friends. And he was a 50, he was fifteen years old at the time, so he was a a, a kid. I love that. That's great. Yeah, it's super neat. Uh, they became friends, and this was written in 1936. That's it. That's it. That's the only thing they really did together. Yeah. Uh, Sterling went on to Harvard and became a clinical professor of medicine, and this story was eventually published in Weird Tales, October 1939. Right. It did the rounds, I think, for a while and got rejected, and then yeah. after Lovecraft's death, it, it was published. You know, this. I know you don't like it, but the, the story, I love that he collaborated with a teenager here. Mm-hmm. Uh, near the end of his life and career. And, and, and the story reminds me a little bit of his early work. I mean, there's something kind of 
innocent about it. When I was reading, it made me feel like a kid reading one of my crappy paperback pulps. Uh-huh. It just was so childish in a way, the, the story. Yeah. Although there is some interesting, I think, stuff near the end that might have a lens on Lovecraft's changing worldview, maybe. Mm-hmm. For the most part, it's very simple, you know, yeah. little typical pulp story. And I don't know. I thought there was something kind of neat about that. <laughs> You're on your own, pal. You're, <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, in those first few paragraphs, they got a guy landing on Venus, getting used to the environment, and he's in the middle of some situation, which we don't know what it is yet, but he recounts the story so far. He had set out through the jungles of Venus. He works for this crystal company. Mm-hmm. He has a post at Terra Nova, which I guess is probably the, the Earth settlement or whatever. Yeah. And it's a, it's a tough environment. We get a taste of his character in the first few paragraphs. And he's kind of a... I like this character a lot. He's kind of a know-it-all, you know? Yeah. He says... Uh, he's mad about his equipment. He says, These Carter oxygen masks are too heavy. A Dubois mask with sponge reservoir <laughs> instead of tubes would give just as good air at half the weight. He's like a real snot, you know? Yeah. It's obvious. He, he kind of reminded me a bit of the protagonist from The Temple. Like, he was a funny character. Yeah, I could, I could see that a bit. But I, I did, however, think that this kind of sci-fi jargon stuff is annoying to me okay like i I get really annoyed when in science fiction stuff they'll just start talking about some technology and it's not in relation to anything i didn't think they did that very much no but the first you know what's that the third paragraph it starts it starts in on it and i'm like going oh god i hate this stuff when they're talking about these stupid breathing apparatus it doesn't mean anything it's not connected (laughs) to squat i don't care Really? See, I thought that it was actually generous in the other direction because they didn't... The crystals were just called crystals. Yeah. He's wearing, like, a leather suit. Everything's pretty normal, except they need to have breathing apparatus. Yeah. And and the when he talks about it, it's not just a fact that you don't need. Like, he uses the mention of the breathing apparatus to, to let you know something about the character. So, to me, that seemed appropriate. Yes. I can see that. I can see your point on there. However, I... I, I was already annoyed with the story, so it didn't do anything. <laughs> and even the uh, the aliens, they didn't call them like the Chikalakas. No, the... they're called man lizards. Yeah, they're man lizards. <laughs> which I, actually, I did like that. I did like the fact. And they he went with man lizard, not lizard man, which I thought yeah. was, was kind of bold, frankly. Exactly. Uh, so these crystals, the whole point of what these they want with these crystals is that they're a power source. Right. Somehow the technology, they can get these crystals and then they can suck the power out of them. And they can power a whole city or, or something like that. These man lizards kind of worship these things. They get them and they put them right. in temples and stuff. And it really annoys the protagonist, Kenton Stanfield. That, that's his name. You find that out at the end of the story. His name is Stanfield. It's annoying to him that these man lizards worship the crystals. They were nice enough, the aliens, to the human uh, colonists until they started taking the crystals. And then they, they'll only attack the people who are taking the crystals even. Right. They don't go after everybody. No. But uh, they they sort of have a connection to them. Yeah, and, well, and they're, they're primitive as well. They only have blow darts and swords, and they have these cities that they built. But he says they're more like ant hills, <laughs> right? And right away you get this Avatar vibe. Even the uh, the aliens are tall yeah. and communicate through these tentacles with one another. Mm-hmm. The environment is super hostile. It's almost as if it's connected to the natives. I mean, did you get that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in Avatar, they wore breathing masks. Yeah. Because they couldn't, and if it was any more than 30 seconds or a few minutes, they would die if you didn't have your breathing mask because there was something toxic in the, I was like, man, that's totally Avatar. And then, yeah, they're really tall. They're, I think they said on the average, they're seven, seven feet tall. They're trying to protect their resource, which you might as well call it uh, unobtainium. Yeah. <laughs> it suddenly made more sense to me that Cameron wanted to produce at the Mountains of Madness. <laughs> 
Because <laughs> clearly ripping off this story was, you know, good for him in his last movie. Did you did you hear about that? About what Del Toro said? What did he say? Uh, well, he said that he saw Prometheus and it made him want to not make Mountains of Madness because Prometheus is basically at the Mountains of Madness. Yeah, which makes me really want to see it now. Yeah, then I got really excited about seeing it. Yeah, for sure. Well, so our protagonist has this casual indifference for violence. Yeah. Towards the natives as well, in fact, around when he's as he's out exploring. And basically, he's all this happening is he's taken off from his base and he's looking for crystals. Mm-hmm. He's out exploring around and, and one of them shoots a dart at his helmet. So he turns around with his flame pistol and he fries like three of these guys. Yeah. Just just nails him. Boom. Flame pistol. Doesn't really bother him that he does it. No. That, that's another way that he reminded me of the guy from the temple. He just has this casual indifference for violence. And he also has this kind of stoicism in the face of his troubles later. Yeah. He uses his reason to remain calm. There's a little in-joke there where he says, even though he thinks these creatures are really primitive, he is amazed that they are the highest living thing on the planet. There are no other creatures able to take dominance away from them. He says, uh, no living thing higher than the wriggling Ackmans and Scoras. People say that the Ackmans is a it's a joke about Forrest J. Ackerman. Yes, it is. Yeah, a lot of these aliens, they are, are references to other writers and, and things that I'm pretty sure Lovecraft had put in because it's similar to what he did with the Battle of the Century. Yes, yes. From what I read, basically the kid had a manuscript that was about 8,000 words and then Lovecraft took that and totally rewrote it into this much longer piece. Yeah. I'd be curious to see if you actually would like the 15-year-old story better. <laughs> Just because it probably, you know, there's not as much description in, in business. Well, so he keeps walking. He continues through the jungle. It's all muddy and your feet sink in. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, he runs into this. As he's walking through the jungle, he runs into this mirage plant. He start, Everything <laughs> starts going trippy, and he doesn't know what's going on. And then he realizes, oh, this happened to a friend of mine, Bailey. A few years ago, there's this certain kind of plant. If you get too close to it, it, it makes you hallucinate, basically. Hallucinate, see crazy, trippy stuff. Yeah, and all you can do is just sort of back away in this, in a direction and hope that you stop tripping out if you get far enough away from it. Right. Which he does here, it says... Uh, Although everything was spinning perilously, I tried to start in the right direction and hack my way ahead. My route must have been far from straight, for it seemed hours before I was free of the mirage plant's pervasive influence. Gradually, the dancing lights began to disappear and the shimmering spectral scenery began to assume the aspect of solidity. When I did get wholly clear, I looked at my watch and was astonished to find that the time was only 4.20. Though eternities had seemed to pass, the whole experience could have consumed little more than half an hour. So not only is the story the source of Avatar, Mm -hmm. it's the origin of 4.20 as code for getting high. (laughs) (laughs) Well, could be. Could be. Yeah. I read it on Wikipedia. What? Confirmed. <laughs> what do you mean it's on Wikipedia? <laughs> on Wikipedia for this story, there was a, a fellow that has this theory that this actually is the origin of 420. I doubt that that's true. But Who started 420? Is there a guy that... that uh... Well, f- the 420 is one of those things that nobody can say. There's a lot of different theories for you know how that came about oh, as code, if it's a, a police code, or if it's a time that Snoop Dogg used to get high. I mean, there's a lot of... <laughs> right. Well, everybody... There's a lot of legendary. So this is just as legitimate as anything else. I think it's more legitimate because it's it's the oldest uh, reference I've ever heard of to 420. Yeah, that's true. So... There you go. HBL likes his cannabis. <laughs> well, so uh, after the trip wears off, he keeps questing about, and he climbs this plateau, and he sees these forests in the distance, and he realizes that it's Eric's. Yeah. Or the Aracinian Highland. Right. I was wondering, I know that the Venus doesn't have any jungles or anything that he describes here, but I thought maybe the plateau or there was some topographical feature that he was making reference to. No, I don't think so. It might actually be based on, yeah, probably not, but yeah. I don't know. 
seems like he might do something like that. Well, but speaking of Venus, you know, Venus is obviously doesn't have any jungles, but it, it atmospheric pressure, I believe, is 10 times that of Earth's. Mm-hmm. And it's has a, a high volume of sulfuric acid. Right. And I think its temperatures reach 900 degrees. Yeah. So it's um, nothing like it's a this. very sexy planet. <laughs> <laughs> So it's nothing like this, but at the time, people didn't know much about Venus. So I, these, this is right. okay. This is, you have to keep that in mind. Well, I just, you know, I know that it, he's calling it Venus, but I'm, it's just some extraterrestrial world where... Well, that, I mean, those types mind. of things don't bother me. And, but there are some things about this story that bother the crap out of me, and we'll talk about them as we get to it. Well, I think we're getting there right now, because when he sees this Eryx, this Arisinian Highland area and the woods beyond it, in that in that forest, he sees this shiny sort of distant glow. Right. Well, his crystal detector goes crazy. It says, hey, there's a crystal yes. nearby. And he gets super excited and he starts running towards where that is because he doesn't want anybody else to jump his claim on this. Exactly. And as he's running, bam, he just falls flat on his ass, doesn't see what hit him. He's trying to figure it out. And he yeah. realizes, wait a minute, it is an invisible wall. Yeah, it's a force field. I love force fields. Well, yeah, I guess I don't know if it's a force field as much as it is an invisible wall because it has... what's. I mean, for force fields, I always felt like they were, I mean, they were solid, but they were, you know, like maybe you could bend them a bit or they would give away. This is just, he says it feels like either concrete or steel, but it's completely transparent. It's an invisible kind of building, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think of force fields because of that one, because that, you remember when you were a kid and you'd set up all your toys and then you'd be ready, you know, you'd have your G.I. Joes or your Star Wars guys and you'd be ready to attack each other. And then Mm -hmm. the other kid would be like, no, I have a force field. I know what kid you're talking about specifically. <laughs> you can't and do that. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna bring his name up on on our show. No, no. But I know that kid, but, and he was he was a jerk. Well, then, because then you set up all your toys, and then you're just staring at each other. Yeah. And you say, "Well, I have force field penetrating bullets." And you say, "That's I my force fields. I made it after that technology was invented, so you still can't." For I have an anti force field ray, and he goes, "Well, I have an anti anti force field ray force field." Yeah. No fun to play with. Let me tell you. So he starts investigating this invisible wall. By just kind of pushing along the sides of it, he realizes it's this big curving, mm-hmm. curving wall. He can't reach the top of it, but uh, he starts throwing uh, mud up to kind of see how high it is. And it, he thinks it's about 20 feet tall, but has an open top to it. And there is uh, no ending to the left and the right. He, it just seems like it goes on for a long long period of time and he follows it along for a while getting closer to the crystal and when he gets close enough he sees something kind of shocking i've said that even from a greater distance the shining object's position seemed indefinably queer on a slight mound rising from the slime now at about a hundred yards i could see plainly despite the engulfing mist just what the mound was it was the body of a man in one of crystal company's leather suits lying on his back with his oxygen mask half buried in the mud a few inches away. In his right hand, crushed convulsively against his chest, was the crystal which had led me here, a spheroid of incredible size, so large that the dead fingers could scarcely close over it. So I will say here that it was pretty clear that this thing is some kind of bait and that there's a big sci-fi invisible trap here. Yeah, you know, honestly, I didn't didn't see that coming. I mean, I didn't didn't see it as a trap. I just was... You know, I thought it was some structure of some kind. I, honestly, I didn't care enough to really think too much about it. Hmm. Well, I mean, if I if I thought the story, the, the part of the story where I maybe had some trouble was right here, because I thought, come on, just go back, get a bunch of people to come investigate. 
you know, don't you'll get credit for finding the thing. You don't have to go in there and explore it on your own, you know? <laughs> well, that's I mean, here's the thing. He goes in to where the body is. Yeah. And he pries, pries it out, gets gets the crystal, then leaves. But then he goes, hmm, I wonder what this place is like on the inside. I wonder how far it goes on. You know what? I'm going to go back and check it out. So he was he was gone. I mean, he was out. He was free. He was fine. I know. He didn't have to do this. And there's one of those things where this body, he, I mean, it's, it's, I think he said in the reading, you can see that his breathing apparatus had been yanked out or something. So <laughs> the guy suff- suffocated. Yeah. And this guy's a totally, com- he's totally a company man. What, I think he's getting money from Dubois because he says, uh, uh, yeah, probably it had fallen off because it had been carelessly buckled so that the weight of the tubes worked the straps loose. Right. A thing could not have happened if it was a Dubois sponge reservoir mask. Yeah. <laughs> like he brings it up again. It's almost as if they sponsored the story. Yeah. <laughs> it's killing me. Uh. Well, you're right. So he speculates on the nature of the structure for a while, and then he decides he has to go in and explore it, uh, which he does. And that goes on for some time. I'm not going to bother going through all this stuff. but this is Yeah, this is where – oh, man. First of all, he just – he gets lost. He gets stuck in there. Yeah, that's all you need to know. In this entry, he, he explores, realizes it's a maze, and he gets lost. But it's so oh, – god. And this is what – super annoying to me is that that is almost uh, two pages of of him going well i moved to my left and then i couldn't go that way so i moved to my right and then i tried this way and it's like yeah who cares it's and that's just that entry because the next entry i didn't even make notes on it because that's all it is oh. it's just a, a, a paragraph by ca- paragraph the fact that it's not thought out in in the fact that if there are invisible walls that go into the ground all right, because there's mud everywhere. If they go into the ground, you would see big trenches where the walls are. Now, I thought to myself, well, maybe it's somehow floating above the mud. Well, no, because he tries to dig under exactly. it. Exactly. He digs under it, and the wall extends in the mud. So that would mean that you would, since it's invisible, you would see the big trenches where the walls are. And if you could see the trenches, then you could see how it's laid out, and you would not be lost. Unless the walls had some kind of reflective property that made it hard to see don't know dude that's a great point and it didn't even occur to me (laughs) i in my head if they're sophisticated enough to build an invisible maze they're sophisticated enough to construct the walls in such a way that the ground looks firm that i think is a big um bunch of bs (laughs) that is a really good point and i'm i have to um admit that it didn't occur to me and now i feel i I just think it's some some shoddy uh it wasn't really thought out like because, you know, when I'm reading, I'm, you know, I'm visualizing this as, as you read the story, because there are some very vivid descriptions of these things. But yeah. as they're talking about it and he says that there's mud everywhere, they throw mud on and the mud just rolls down it and completely disappears. Comes off of it. it comes yeah. off of it. Yeah. Uh, so that made me think, well, then there's sh- what about pushing piles of mud up against the edges of it? And then I go, well, wait a minute. Then you would you would see that, but then there's going to be big trenches where the wall is. It just didn't make any sense. It, it's it wasn't thought out, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I wish that had occurred to me. Well, I, I guess I think when that I was starting to read faster when the plant thing happened, mm-hmm. and then I thought, well, well, we'll slow down. You know, I'm going to try and really get into this guy's head. So uh, I tried to imagine what it would be like running around in the jungle with this mirage plant having attacked your brain, and then. When he got into the maze, I still had this kind of, I'm going to really try hard to imagine this guy's plight. So when he was 
walking along the walls and trying to figure out how to get out and everything, it really wasn't bothering me that much. No. I was kind of on board with all of his different strategies. I was like, okay, he's trying this now, then he's going to try that. Okay. It, mm. it really, seriously, I wasn't getting too angry about it. It's not a good story. It's just boring to hear him talk about all the strategies of going through a maze. Like, that's not, where's the... <laughs> It's ridiculous. Well, after all of his strategies going through the maze, finally something else happens. Yeah. Uh, the lizard men start showing up. This is a day or so in. He's mm -hmm. getting kind of desperate. Uh, about a dozen show up and start watching him through the walls, uh, the exterior walls of the maze, and we get a good view of them, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. The resemblance to reptiles was perceptible, though I knew it was only an apparent one since these beings have no point of contact with terrestrial life. When they drew nearer, they seemed less truly reptilian only the flat head and the green slimy frog-like skin carrying out the idea. They walked erect on their odd thick stumps and their suction discs made curious noises in the mud. These were average specimens about seven feet in height and with four long ropey pectoral tentacles. The motions of those tentacles, if the theories of Fogg, Ekberg and Janat were right, which I formerly doubted but I am now more ready to believe, indicated that the things were an animated conversation I thought that was cool. Yeah. They move their tentacles around to talk. Yeah. And they're like, t they're taking bets and making fun of him. Well, and... that's funny. That's one of the quotes here that I really like. It says here, the circling watchers were swaying their tentacles in an odd, irregular way, suggestive of sly alien laughter. And I shook my fist savagely at them as I rose. What? <laughs> he what? shook his fist savagely at him. What? But I mean, <laughs> their motion, their regular way seem to be sly alien laughter like what the i could even i i'm doing it with my hands right now i know exactly what that looks like <laughs> you know what's funny too is here he's a little dense because after they show up and he starts he starts to begin to figure this out he goes wait a minute that was the crystal was bait and this is really a maze mm -hmm. and these guys are smarter than i thought yeah. i've been tricked and he freaks out, too. He goes nuts. He's, like, running around, stumbling. Yeah, he runs around and smashes into a wall and, and, and gets bloody from it. I mean, he really yeah. it really freaks him out. But basically, it goes on for a while. He's, he runs out of water. He tries to get his get. He tries to get out of the maze. He thinks he's finally figured it out, but then he doesn't. He says uh, that's when night falls, the uh, aliens are out there with glow torches, mm -hmm. still watching him. It says that circle of feeble glow torches is hideous. In my head, I just imagine they were out there with a bunch of like Blade Runner umbrellas, you know, just glowing the dark. <laughs> I pictured a, a, a glow sticks, like you know, they have at raves and things. Yeah, I kind of thought of that too. Like they're all out there with the jester hats and whistles, whistles. and the, <laughs> yeah, they're they're having a rave. After that initial freakout, he sobered up a little bit, and I have an advantage over the guy who died. I I know this is a maze, so I can work my way out. But as you say, he just keeps getting lost and running out of supplies. He has to actually conserve his energy because he's running out of oxygen. So he just has to crawl. And I I thought that that was kind of a cool scenario. Like, he's so tired, he's crawling around on the ground. In the mud. In the mud, still trying to find the way out. In this weird transparent cage, in the center of which is a corpse, and on the outside of which are these aliens who are laughing at him with their chest tentacles. It's so surreal, man. I just thought it was really cool. Yeah, I know. I can't, I can't, I can't share that with you. It was just lame to me. Right. He thinks he's got it all figured out, and then um, near his last entry, he says, "Horror and despair, baffled again." After making the previous entry, I approached still closer to the skeleton, but suddenly encountered an intervening wall. 
I'd been deceived once more, and was apparently back where I had been three days before on my first futile attempt to leave the labyrinth. Whether I screamed aloud, I do not know. Perhaps I was too weak to utter a sound. I merely lay dazed in the mud for a long period, while the greenest things outside leaped and laughed and gestured. Real quick, something that we didn't mention. The reason that he's making his way toward the corpse is because, ironically, the corpse, who he knows, right? It's, uh, yeah. it's a guy from an earlier expedition, died right in the doorway of the exit. Yeah. To the main. Yeah. Uh, he just didn't we, realize that, well, we think that he didn't realize that he was so close to the, right. to the exit. Which couldn't possibly happen to our protagonist. No, of course not. Of course it's not going to happen. He thinks about suicide, too, at this point, and he starts yeah. to go, well, wait a minute. Remember, the guy's uh, hose was pulled out. He thinks maybe he did it intentionally to die quickly instead of starving to death or right. dehydrating. Our guy isn't going to do that. He's going to save his strength. He, he realizes now that he's not going to be able to escape this thing. He's going to continue writing this record, and he hopes that when the lizard men are distracted by the rave at night, he can throw the, uh, <laughs> throw the record up over the maze, over the wall. Yeah. So that men will find it and not go in and get trapped as he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought there was an interesting notion when he says that, that he, he wants the people to get the record and he wants them to learn something. He says, If it does survive to be read, I hope it may do more than merely warn men of this trap. I hope it may teach our race to let those shining crystals stay where they are. They belong to Venus alone. Our planet does not truly need them, and I believe we have violated some obscure and mysterious law some law buried deep in the arcana of the cosmos in our attempts to take them. Who can tell what dark, potent, and widespread forces spur on these reptilian things that guard their treasure so strangely? Dwight and I have paid, as others have paid and will pay. But it may be that these scattered deaths are only the prelude to greater horrors to come. Let us leave Venus that which belongs only to Venus. So the character changed. It is surprisingly thoughtful for this guy at this point, not being angry and vengeful towards these these creatures. He realizes that he was in error, that he shouldn't. Maybe he shouldn't have been doing these things, that these creatures had their own civilization that, that's existed for thousands of years. And who is he to come in and ruin it? He hasn't able to get up the strength to throw the record. So he just keeps writing. And the last few entries are of him slowly dying. There's one passage in those last few entries where he says... As the end approaches, I feel more kindly toward the things. In a scale of cosmic entity, who can say which species stands higher or more nearly approaches a space-wide organic norm, theirs or mine? So it's a change, a big change from his earlier kind of bigoted opinion of the right. creatures. And so you think that that might have some kind of reflection of what Lovecraft was thinking in his life? I don't know. Do you think that? Could be. I, some people say that he, he really did change his attitudes, uh, his kind of racist, bigoted feelings as he got older. And uh, maybe this is an indication of that. I would like to think so. And that would really be a cool, you know, kind of outro to our longer journey through his work. Of course, there is a collaborator here. So that could very well have been a notion that Sterling introduced. to the- It could be. It could be. But again, Lovecraft wrote this as he took a, a very rough draft and rewrote it so yeah either he he might not have originally had that notion but he kept it in there he did and and i i, I don't know it that was a it was worth it to hang in with the story and we have something like this in the, at the mountains of madness where he comes to sort of the same yeah revelation about the elder things but this is even more like anti-imperialist in a way mm. you know we shouldn't be going and taking their things and just because they're native and we don't understand them doesn't give us a right and who's to say that we're more or less civilized than them and i i think that uh, sentiment is 
is a good one and it's interesting. It's just the rest of the story is so boring that it, to me, it was felt limp. I hear you. Um, I thought it was really cool. Well, anyway, the, so he dies off because his journal entries end and, and the last entry in the story is the report of another prospector who finds his body. Mm-hmm. They find the trap. Mm-hmm. They study it. It's a lot of guys from his mining company. What do they do? They uh, <laughs> they get the crystal from him. They drill into the maze. They dynamite it. Yeah. They take it apart. They get the crystal. They find his body. Mm-hmm. And they find his record. And the person who's writing this entry says, later, we'll adopt Stanfield's suggestion. Not not anything he said later, what we just heard, but the, the sound suggestion in the saner earlier part of his report. We're going to bring enough troops to wipe out all of the natives altogether. Yeah. So just when the narrator had that realization, his company goes the other way, yeah. which, you know, is awful. All that all that effort he went through to come to this kind of revelation is all for naught. The people are still going to destroy this race. Yeah. And then, obviously, that's not the only irony. In considering the plan of the labyrinth, one is impressed not only with the irony of Dwight's fate, but with that of Stanfield as well. When trying to reach the second body from the skeleton, we could find no access on the right. But Markheim found a doorway from the first inner space some 15 feet past Dwight and four or five past Stanfield. Beyond this was a long hall which we did not explore till later. But on the right-hand side of that wall was another doorway leading directly to the body. Stanfield could have reached the outside entrance by walking 22 or 23 feet if he had found the opening which lay directly behind him. An opening which he overlooked in his exhaustion and despair. That's the end of the story. That's the end. And and Dwight, I guess we didn't... Dwight is the... The dead body that was there originally. Protagonist ended up the same way. He was almost at the exit. And there was some um, tip to that because as he was dying and and he brings out the crystal to look at it, all of the lizard men get really close to look at it as well. And they're really close to him. So he he was really close to getting out of that maze. But he didn't make it. He didn't make it, no. And nobody learned anything, and that's the 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 horror of the of the of the tale. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I I get it. I just this, the maze was really boring to me, and I thought it was written and over overwritten. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably could have been about half half this half the length it was, and maybe I would have enjoyed it, but I didn't yeah. enjoy it. And I did. That's rare, you know. We usually agree on these. things. I know. I should be more mad at you. Probably would make better radio. <laughs> You don't know what you're talking about, Lackey. You don't know what you're talking about, Pfeiffer. Did you ever learn how to read in a brothel? <laughs> I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. That would be a very sexy classroom. We have one more story before our last story. Yeah, we have The Night Ocean, which is another collaboration. Which is my last story that I haven't read. Yeah, me too. That's it. Haunter, the Haunter in the Dark is uh, one I'm very familiar with. Yeah, so yeah. I'm looking forward to talking about that story. Well, you don't even know anything about that, do you? I don't know anything about it. I know it's Barlow. It's a, his last uh, Barlow collaboration. And I believe it's actually the last story that Lovecraft works on. Yeah, yeah. Haunter in the Dark was written earlier, but we, we figured we should end on a on a bigger story, a better story than one of these collaborations. Yeah, it's one that he wrote all on his own. Yeah. Although it was in response to a Robert Block story. It was, yeah. And we'll talk about that in two weeks. We will. Um, I guess that's all we have. I want to thank Stephen Brewster for doing an excellent job reading. Thank you so yeah. much again for coming on the show. Great job. Great actor. And I uh, also want to thank David Maurice Garrett for lending his music to us. You're hearing some of it now. It's pretty groovy stuff. We're going to have some more original music uh, of varying kinds on next week's episode. So 
look forward to that. Um, try to get more of that in as we as we close out. With that, I am Chris Lackey. And I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you have been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Hp